I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Hi, and welcome to Play Me and our new series, The Show Must Go On, created in response to the unprecedented closings of theaters around the world due to the global pandemic. We'll be sharing seven powerful shows, most of which were canceled because of COVID-19. And we're doing it all in the age of physical distancing. Chris and I are recording in our respective homes, and we're connecting remotely with actors from their residences, including the next play in our series, Take to Milk Na, by Javesh Parashram, recorded in his home in Vancouver. This funny and refreshingly candid solo show seamlessly blends personal storytelling and ritual as it sets out to explore what it means to be Canadian. It examines race, religion, and nationalism, all while inviting audiences to consider what divides us and what we're willing to accept in the desire to belong. The show was set to hit the stage at Theatre Passmerai in March, before it was cancelled, days before opening. This is part one of Take the Milk Now by Javesh Parashram. Hi, I'm Jiv. Thanks for listening to my identity play. So, uh, who knows what an identity play is? And I mean, you can't really respond, but... I'm going to assume that maybe some people do. Okay, so cool. So for everybody else, an identity play is a show in which the protagonist, so the main person of the show, they discover a conflict within themselves. So maybe they've always thought that they were ex-identity, but then they meet somebody who challenges that and they feel something in themselves shift. So like Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker, he lives on Tatooine. He is basically just a moisture farmer, but he knows that he wants more. Then this droid shows up with a message for Princess Leia. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. You're my only hope, right? Uh, So Luke goes and he finds Obi-Wan. And then Obi-Wan's like, let's go, guy. And then Luke's like, ah, nah, guy, I can't. I got to farm all this moisture. So that's Luke feeling something in himself shift. But then the Empire burns Luke's family alive, which is kind of ironic because they farm moisture. And so off he goes to fulfill his destiny as a great Jedi Knight. Anyway, that's the basic structure. Essentially, someone is at conflict with who they truly are, then they go on a journey and they discover either their true identity or that they were always okay from the get-go. 
Then everybody in the audience, they feel good about that person having found their identity. Maybe they remember their own identity. Maybe they call their family. The end. Now, a lot of people, they do an identity play once they graduate from theater school. The more pretentious of us, we wait about 10, 12 years or so to truly find our voice. And if they're really pretentious assholes, they do it as a solo show. And if you've never been to a solo show before, good for you. Uh, basically, they kind of work like this. First, there's this part where the performer that comes out and they're like, Oh, hey, guys, what's going on? We're just talking. The show hasn't started yet. This is all totally off the cuff, not scripted at all. And then the performer, they'll tell some stories from like their childhood and like puberty and online dating and about their grandmother's hands. And then at some point, they'll introduce a nostalgic element like. Uh, right. And then they don't really mention it for a while, but in the middle, they'll do a monologue that's like. And my dad doesn't understand me, and I just want to connect. But my masculinity hurts, and I think about that song. And there's a dramatic pause, like, pause. And then, because it's a solo show, they'll also do a lot of this thing, where they're, like, having an intense conversation with someone, like their dad, or if you want to get, like, really 2010, like their mom. But they're playing both parts, like, Hi. Hi. It's been a long time. Yes, it has. Your hair is different. Yes. Did you get a haircut? No. Oh. Yes. It looks different. I'm parting it to the side now. Pardon? I'm parting it to the side now. Oh. Do you put product in it? A little. It looks good. Thank you. Also, I have cancer. And then somebody dies and they go for a walk. And then through some free form movement experience, including this movement, <gasps> they see a bird or something and they say, I know you're still with me because I can feel you in here. And what I was looking for all along was really just me. And then it snows. It's fucking stupid. And I don't know if the snowing thing is just a Canadian identity play thing or if like all identity plays have it. Oh, and that's the thing. Identity plays are especially popular in Canada. And if not popular, common. And I promise we'll start the show in a sec, but I think this next part is good for context. I think, I think the reason there are so many Canadian identity plays is because in the 1950s and 60s, there was this national commission. And this was responsible for the creation of the Canada Council for the Arts. Thanks, by the way. And that organization had a real priority to define what Canadian identity was. Ergo, funding. But then they mainly funded work about the settler colonial history of Canada and mainly English Canada. Then French Canada, they got all pissy about it, so they did their own. 
Then they both realized that indigenous people existed. So then a bunch of white guys wrote identity plays for indigenous people, because I guess that seemed like a good idea. Then there were people of color just popping up out of nowhere. There were queer people. There were poor people. There were people with disability. There were women. And I hear there's even something called women of color. But how, right? That's like two at once. Queer women of color? What the fuck? As far as I can tell, this is actually the first Indo-Caribbean Hindu-Canadian identity play ever done. So we are making highly hyphenated history here and using tax dollars. Thing is, I never really wanted to do an identity play because I think they're kind of wanky. Because identities are intersectional and my experience is just my experience, no matter how handsome a brown man I am. And my mom says, very handsome. I also feel conflicted because in some ways by contributing to the canon of Canadian identity plays, it means that I'm supporting the idea that the state of Canada is a real thing. And I don't. Although it's great to be featured on a CBC podcast. In fact, the only thing towards territory I'd like to recognize is that this show was originally created on the territory of the Haudenosaunee and the Wendat and the Anishinaabe peoples. Uh, since we started doing it, we've been able to take it out and perform it on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, Musqueam, and Slabertooth, where I'm recording today. Uh, we've also gotten a chance to take it to the unceded Algonquin territories. And before there was a massive COVID-19 crisis, we were slated to take it a couple more places too, so hopefully we'll be there at some point. But what I mean to say is, this is territory. It's not a state. It means this is a shared territory, not property that anyone owns. So all to say, I didn't really want to do an identity play, but then I did this story about a cow I knew one time at my buddy Graham's storytelling night. And then my other buddy, Tom, who I run this theater company with uh, called Pandemic Theater, uh, which I recognize is not the best name for a theater company right now. He was like, dude, that should be a play. And I was like, fuck no, man. There's way more interesting things to do a play about. What about like colonization or like the dangers of nationalism or like marginalization theory? And then Graham was like, oh, yeah, man, that sounds awesome. Everybody wants to sit in the dark and hear about marginalization theory. He writes for Vice. So, yeah, I'm conflicted because on the one hand, while I think identity plays are wanky and I don't want to implicitly support the idea of the state of Canada, I also recognize that representing your identity is important. Because, I don't know, did you know that this past January marked 100 years since the end of the Indian indentureship? And, you know, if you didn't know that, you don't need to hold any guilt or shame for not knowing that. You know, we're all allies here, but maybe nobody ever told you. Do you know what the Indian indentureship was? And again, if you don't, you don't need to hold any guilt or shame if you don't know. Maybe nobody ever told you. Because history, mainstream history is like that. Not everything's written in the book. So sometimes you gotta look to the margins for notes. Like you got any Indo-Caribbean friends? I mean, I, I, I can't hear if you're saying yes or no, but uh, you know, do you want one? All right, so now the first Indo-Caribbean Hindu-Canadian identity play that we know of. Are we ready to make history? Okay, let's get started. play a game, shall we? It's a call and response game. I know I can't really hear you, 
but uh, we're going to go with it anyway. You're still down with that. All right. The dog says, perhaps wolf. The cat says, maybe you're thinking meow. The goat says, in fairness, goats have like very complicated vocal cords, so there's a lot of different sounds a goat could make. The cow says, now if you thought moo, you are wrong. I will fight you on that. Now, to be fair, I'll chalk it up to a cultural translation thing, because most of the cows that I know happen to be Trinidadian cows, much like myself, but we're going to get into that in a little bit. But I've always thought the cows, or at least Trini cows, they make a sound that's a lot more like... And if you ignore them or you annoy them or something, they make this awesome sound where they go... And because I've always thought that the Trinidadian accent sounds like people are constantly whining and complaining. No offense to any Trinis listening, but kind of does. I've always felt like they're going, Hey, boy. Dicky milk. Dicky milk. Oh, yeah. Come on, Dicky milk. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on, Dicky milk. Cows are fucking awesome. I've known this is as far back as I can remember, but I don't think I've always known why. I do know that sometimes when I talk about cows and somebody makes a cutesy joke like, mmm, cows, yum, I have a visceral desire to break the face. Which is weird, because I'm not really a violent person. I'm like a Caribbean dude, you know? Laid back. Iri. Ganja. So yeah, I'm none of that. But I am Trinidadian. And the first reaction I tend to get from a lot of people when I tell them I'm Trinidadian is, but you're not black. Except for in the Maritimes, where they still think I'm black. And it's just amazing to me that you wouldn't just naturally assume that there is a massive population of South Asians in Trinidad, because there's pretty much a massive population of South Asians fucking everywhere. Like, we get around, man. Pretty much anywhere the British went, you know we were down to follow. And if by follow, you mean be subjected to imperial starvation policy in your homeland, and then when faced with no other option but to attempt to survive, get ported off under false promises into indentured servitude to who the fuck knows where. Or, you know, follow. Quote, Winston Churchill. I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. The famine was their own fault for breeding like rabbits. So, I'm Trinidadian. Specifically, I'm Indo-Trinidadian. And apparently we got there because we fuck like champs. Other quote from Winston Churchill. I'm Winston Churchill, and I'm a fucking cockface. Now, one of those quotes is historically accurate. But which one? I'll never tell. Indians are beastly people. Now, in case you're unfamiliar with what I mean when I say indentured servitude, that's totally cool. I'll give you a primer. So basically, there's this thing called slavery, and the British Empire was all about it. Don't need to keep going? I'm gonna keep going. So the British and other colonial powers, which is a Western term for assholes, started by enslaving local populations and then bought 
kidnapped and stole people and sent them to the Caribbean to grow things like coffee, cocoa, and sugar, which I know sounds bad, but you need to understand, they really liked sugar. But eventually, they decided it was morally wrong to do so. Good job, colonial assholes. I mean, it may have also had something to do with the people of Haiti, who, between 1791 and 1804, kicked the living shit out of the colonial powers, putting an end to slavery in Haiti and declaring themselves their own sovereign nation. But you know, that's not the mainstream history. That's just what happened. So, three years later, 1807, British Empire, Cockface Kingdom, start the process of ending slavery for themselves. They get a little bit sidetracked. They don't actually end it till 1833, except for in the British East India Company, where it continues for another 10 years, mainly in Sri Lanka. But generally, in 1833, everybody agrees slavery is bad. But also in 1833, the term servitude gets introduced. See, now they got all these islands in the Caribbean that are full of people who are now free and understandably a bit resentful of the people who used to own them. So they go to India. Good timing because there's a massive famine going on there, which if you recall is because we fuck like champs and Winston Churchill is a cockface. His words. So say you are an Indian woman in Bihar, where my family comes from, poor farming folk, Somebody offers you a work contract. You're going to go to Calcutta, the capital of the time. You're going to serve a wealthy family for a bit. Pretty good deal, right? All you got to do is just sign this contract, which you can't read, and then boom. You are on a boat to Fiji, Mauritius, Guyana, or Trinidad. But it's not slavery. You do get paid. You just have to work off the cost of travel. And also the cost of living, which, by the way, you can only purchase food from the plantation you now work on. And if you do anything that could be viewed as illegal, you can be immediately sent to jail without trial. And I know that sounds bad, but you have to remember, they really liked sugar. But I want to be clear, it was not slavery. I don't know if it was better, and I don't know if it was worse. Honestly, to me, it sounds better, but I don't like to compare it. Because that's what the British wanted us to do, Indians and Africans. They wanted to make sure we wouldn't get along. And we are still paying for that today in the country that became home to us. Because I've always felt you don't get to really say that you're from somewhere until your blood has mixed with the soil. And Indians, Africans, Asians, and of course the indigenous Caribbean Arawak people, our blood has drenched that island. But I will say this towards the indentureship. At least with indentureship, Sometimes you got to keep your family. Sometimes. My last ancestor to leave India, or what's now India, was my great-grandfather. And his name was Omkar Maraj. Let me tell you a little bit about him. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Omkar. In this case, he may not have actually been starved out. I mean, maybe. 
We don't actually know that much about him. What we do know is that he was a royal musician, or a musician, but he said he was royal, so we'll go with that. He used to play music in one of the various princedoms somewhere in India. But while I hate to support anything that Winston Churchill's ever said, the fact was Omkar, he had a way with the ladies. Apparently there was this village song we used to sing about him back home that went something like, when Omkar comes around, my waistband gets loose. Which if you were to translate that to today, I think means people were down to take him to Red Lobster. And if you were to translate that to like 2005, they'd take him to the candy shop. And if you translate that to like 1994, they'd like it when you call him Big Papa. Anyway, back in India, Omkar, let's say, earned himself a Red Lobster with a royal. And he got a price put on his head. But he was a noble guy. He was an honorable man. He believed in fighting for the things he believed in. And in this case, that was not being dead. So he got his ass on a boat and he went all the way to Trinidad. And I'm sure he had no idea where the fuck that was. And so after he did his obligatory stint in the indentureship, he was actually able to buy himself out. And what did he do? Well, he had a cow. He had a shop. And he played music late into the night. I know all that, it might not sound like a guy worth celebrating, but it was people like that who were keeping up the songs from the villages back home. It's people like that who kept our culture alive. This is the Ram Chiritamanas, an adaptation of the Ramayana, a great epic that was translated by the sage Tulsidas into the more common tongue. And if you simplify and translate the message, it basically says, if you work hard and you do the right thing, we will overcome the darkness of corruption and tyranny and the light will return. And traditionally, it's sung. This whole thing is a song. Because not everybody can read, but people like music. This is the kind of song he brought with him. From late nights by the fire in the dying crops of Bihar to late nights by the fire in the cane fields of Trinidad. Tradition. See, I'm a Hindu. Before being a beastly Indian, I'm a beastly Hindu. And I don't think I ever really knew I was a Hindu in particular until I was growing up in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. There wasn't really a big Hindu community there. The only other Hindus I knew I was related to, so the topic of Hindu identity never really came up that much. Except for around Christmas time. I used to routinely get in trouble for not wanting to sing in the Christmas concert. Something about that felt wrong to me, and it's not because I have anything against Christianity, it's just that while they all got a concert, in basically the entire month of December, the only thing I ever learned about my religion in school was one day when I found a couple of pages in a book in the school library entitled The Encyclopedia of Eastern Mythology. Because apparently all the things I believed in were just myths. A lot of Indians in Trinidad are Hindu, there's also a lot of Muslims and a ton of Christians because when the British were in charge, it technically had to be Christian if you wanted to do things like go to school or get married. And that meant that Hindus and Muslims, we had to convert or pretend to be Christian. In the case of school, you had to pretend enough to convince the headmaster. Now Hindus, we're pretty cool with shouting out other people's gods, we got plenty. So they would pretend to be Christian and they'd do their own thing at home if they were allowed to go home. And if that sounds chillingly familiar to something Canadian, it's probably because the missionary schools in Trinidad that were specifically focused on Indians were run by Canadians from Nova Scotia 
as it turns out. And again, I'm not trying to compare, and please don't. It's all shitty. All I mean to say is Empire runs deep. But you learn to play along if you can. My dad, to this day, he knows the Lord's Prayer by heart, but he also knows the Hanuman Chalisa. And my auntie can sing Ramayan. And my grandfather raised cows, and they fucking loved those cows like family. And that's the one thing people tend to know about Hindus. We fucking love cows. As a Hindu, you don't ever harm a cow, because that would be a Hindon't. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. So here's one of them. It's uh, from our stories. It's kind of like our version of the Big Bang. Kind of. This is the story of the ocean of milk. So there's this giant ocean of milk. And at this time, the demigods, or the devas, and the demons, or the asuras, are both in search of eternal life. And at the bottom of this ocean is Amrit, the elixir of eternal life. In order to get it, you need to churn the ocean. Neither side strong enough to churn it on their own, so they decide they're going to work together. Now, what's the easiest way to churn an ocean of milk? Well, you take a mountain and you flip it upside down, obviously. See, the goal is they're going to get this mountain to spin, and as it spins, the ocean will start to churn. But then the mountain starts to sink, because it's a mountain. Then Vishnu, who's the god of preservation, by the way, he's like, yo, I got this shit. He takes the form of a turtle, and on the back of the turtle, they place the mountain. But it's still not working. It's got to spin. So in this massive nug, this massive snake-like being named Vasuki, Vasuki wraps himself around the mountain. And on one side of the snake, the devas pull. On one side of the snake, the asuras pull. And as they pull back and forth and back and forth, the ocean starts to churn. And from this churning, we get Amrit, the elixir of eternal life. Now, here's the thing. Both sides start to fight over this. Thinking that one side deserves it more than the other. And Vishnu, he's watching this all go down. So he takes the form of a beautiful woman, which totally distracts the demons. Then his good pal Garud, who's king of the birds, by the way, Garud swoops in and he takes the Amrit and he gives it to the gods. And that's why gods live forever. Also, Snake got some too. And that's why snakes shed their skin and stay young forever. And fucking terrifying. Pretty simplified version of the story, but you get the idea. More practically, though, Hindus love cows because cows are fucking awesome, especially if you're poor. And by and large, historically, in Trinidad, Indians, Africans, Asians, indigenous folk, we all tended to be poor, probably because of that whole slavery, indentured worker, genocide thing. And while everybody had a way to try to get out of this poverty, the way that's a big part of my heritage is very much the strategy of Hindu South Asians. Cows. So yeah, I fucking love cows. They give you milk, they help you pull stuff, and you can use their shit to build your house. Literally. All my family grew up in houses made of cow and or bullshit. And one of the oldest temples in Trinidad that my great-grandfather cared for were people who were running away from the plantations, from being raped and beaten in the plantations. They would go there for shelter just to hide out for a while. And it's still there. So you could say, that shit holds up. So, cows are great. They are the life of our people, and all they ask for is some grass and a pet on the head. When my grandfather finally had enough money, he bought a plot of land, and they built a little cow shit hut there where all 11 of them lived, and they raised cows there. 
Later, that would become the street where all my dad's family lives and the location of one of the first Hindu schools where kids could finally go to school without having to change their religion. But all the while, through all the years, there remains cows on that back road, recently renamed Pundit Parasram Road for my grandfather, which sounds way more legit than what it used to be called, Behind the Hindu School, Makbean Village. My brothers were born there. They grew up there a little bit. My family's all from there. But I was born here. And growing up as the only member of an immigrant family who is technically not an immigrant can get a little bit weird. Uh, They used to call me the white boy because I guess I talked a little different, which since everybody else thought I was black was like extra confusing, right? And then, of course, you get the assholes would be like, hey, man, I don't even see you as a black guy. I see you like a normal white guy. And I'd be like, I am neither black nor white. Besides, like, who wants to be white? Not even white people want to be white anymore. Am I right, white people? Yeah, it's okay. We're all allies here. Anyway, I insisted that I was Trinidadian. But that also kind of meant I had to prove it, you know? That I was like, proper third world. With like, proper third world skills. Other kids had Game Boys. You know, I had a wheel that I proudly pushed with a stick. Other kids had yo-yos. I had a bottle cap on a string that I hammered into a super sharp razor blade thing I used to cut people with. And when I went down to Trinidad, I didn't get that typical Caribbean vacation getaway package. You know, this whole thing. for me, man. Nah. For me, it would go a lot like this. The plane would land, you get off the plane, and then you are immediately slapped in the face with this wall of humidity, because this is before they had the connection to the airport. You just walk straight onto the tarmac. And then I'd go see my uncles. They'd take me to see the cows. Give me some nice, fresh milk with some sugar in it. And let me tell you, there is nothing better than some fresh cow's milk with sugar in it. I still have it sometimes, you know? When I want to treat a jiv. Because my name is because jiv. My name is jiv. Name is jiv. And then... As I was basking in my third world glory, having done the arduous tasks of walking off a plane and drinking a cold beverage, my uncles would say, Fat boy. Because Caribbean people are rude. Right, fats. Oh, you know how to lay pitch? And I'd be like, yeah, I know how to lay pitch. I did not know what that meant. But in fairness to me, do you know what laying pitch means? Maybe you do. Well, I didn't. So pitch, pitch is like naturally occurring asphalt. And laying pitch means fixing the road. So here's how you lay pitch. Step one. You take a 12-year-old child from Canada. Send him out into 35-degree humid Trinidad. Step two. Give him a shovel and a barrel full of pitch. No mask, no respiratory support. Step three. Body shame him. Step four. Let him fix the road. And that, my friends, is how you lay pitch. And now, all that might just sound like child abuse, but you see, in the third world, there's no such thing as child abuse, because child abuse is a first world problem. So, that's how it would go. 
fix the road, fix the road, build a speed bump. I didn't know that you built speed bumps. I didn't know why you needed one because there were only five houses on the whole road. But sure, I'll build a speed bump. Learn how to rewire the electrical in this house. I did that. I now know how to do that because I was proper third world legit. Or should I say proper third world legit? Fair enough. That was part one of Take to Milk Now, written and performed by Gervais Parisran. Episodes two and three are available now on Play Me. The play was co-created with Tom Arthur Davis and Graham Isidore. Tom Arthur Davis directed the original stage production. Take to Milk Now was created with the support of the Ontario Arts Council, the Toronto Arts Council, and the Canada Council for the Arts. It was originally co-produced by Pandemic Theatre and Be Current Performing Arts with support from Theatre Past Mirai. This episode's sound design and edit are by Gregory J. Sinclair. If you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast to help us get the word out to more listeners. We'd also love your feedback about our show. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca and follow us on Twitter at Theatre or on Instagram at Podcast. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me's associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.